0: The verse today is from Romans 12:1 through 2. I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday to you. My name's Cameron. Uh, I'm lead pastor here. Um, and we are finishing this week our six-week series uh, exploring the nature of worship, the praises of his people, a practical theology of worship. Um, and we're going to be considering today another, like, probably major theme across the Bible related to worship, which is the idea of sacrifice. And to start, it might not be a super obvious connection at first, but I just want to read one of my favorite parables of Jesus from Luke chapter 18. Here's what Jesus said, the story Jesus told to illustrate a spiritual truth. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, that's a religious teacher, Uh, highly observant, religious teacher. The other, a tax collector. The exact opposite of that, (laughs) you might say. A sinner, a known sinner. So the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that story is so powerful to me. It's so profound. It it just it gets your mind and your spirit working in so many directions I'm tempted to just say it and then just like make us sit in silence for ten minutes just contemplate it Maybe we should do that, but we're not gonna do that Um, But nonetheless the story of Jesus illustrates something two men two men go to the temple one a respectable religious leader Respectful religious leader, the other, an obviously sinful tax collector, a traitor to his own people, the Jews, all those kinds of things. One who highlights his sacrifices of various sorts here's what I do, here's what I give, here's what I I offer. The other who just simply highlights his own inadequacy and sin. At the end of the story, one is left far from God. But the other is left justified, declared righteous, in right relationship before God. So today we're concluding our series on worship with an exploration of the idea of sacrifice as worship. And it's an idea that's as easy to misunderstand as Jesus' parable reveals that it is. it is. You start talking about sacrifice, it is so easy to import a works-based salvation scheme, an earning the, the love and the, and, and the goods of God through our sacrifices. And this parable would just remind us to hold up, hold up, and find the right place for this aspect of worship, which is what we're going to aim to do today. So pray with me, and we're going to jump in. Lord, um, for some of us, sacrifice is like a mysterious and strange concept that that feels... Kind of bizarre to talk about in the year 2024 for others of us it's it's an idea that's kind of loaded with uh ideas that give us guilt and shame and inadequacy uh and maybe some of us have a really healthy view of a minority of us where we just have got it all right and, and situated properly but our prayer lord this morning is that you would speak to us through your word you would give us clarity you would give us accuracy and lord that that accuracy and clarity would give us love for you Teach us how to approach you in worship one more time, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage that Jessica read for us uh, includes the same word, sacrifice. Sacrifice. I'll read it one more time. Paul says, I, appear, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And we have to say, you know, we're just parachuting into Romans here. I would just say this. This passage serves as a gigantic, like probably one of the most significant transitions in the letter to the Romans, where in the first half, Paul is explaining and defending the gospel and building up to this teaching about how the gospel brings reconciliation between Jewish and Gentile Christians. That's what culminates in chapters 10 and 11. The therefore then, right there in verse 1, the therefore is serving as a gigantic transition in light of all of this. So if all this is true, if this is what the gospel is and this is how it's creating a new humanity and this is what it's up to even, you know, ethnically, relationally between the people, the new people of God, therefore, what must we do? And that's where he moves into. The rest, the next section of Romans is about what do we do in light of the gospel given that all this is true? So here's what he says. In light of all this, Therefore, I appeal to you, I beg you, I urge you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice for this is your spiritual worship. Here's what he says, in light of all this, worship properly, you could summarize that. Worship properly. And how? By offering your bodies as living sacrifices. So what's a sacrifice? What in the world is he talking about? A basic definition of a sacrifice, kind of tuned to the, the biblical uh, religious setting here, um, is a costly gift offering something to God. So, so, so a sacrifice is something you do when your desire for God outweighs other genuine desires. It's something that stings. To make a sacrifice is a costly, Offering to God. And as you might guess, the, the role of Satan, as you probably know, the role of sacrifice across the Old Testament was, was central and important. So I'll just read for a second. Sacrifices and offerings were central acts of worship across the whole Old Testament. From Cain and Abel, uh, just offering these kind of impromptu offerings, those are the first kind of examples we see early on of offerings and sacrifices. Um, up through the formal system that was instituted through the Mosaic law for the tabernacle and the temple, which we've already talked a bit about in this series. Um, there were burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings. If you are itching and dying to go learn about all that, go read the book of Leviticus. It'll just lay it right there for you. You'll have a great little, uh, great little Sunday afternoon diving into that. And then there were the Passover sacrifices as well, as well as others. So, some of these were voluntary ways to just express love and devotion to God that you might just be prompted. I am so overwhelmed with gratitude. I'm just going to sacrifice something to God. Others were thanksgiving. Others were to cleanse one from ceremonial impurity so you could reapproach kind of through the temple system. Others were to atone for sin, both intentional sin and unintentional sin. And it's important to note there was something like a sliding scale of what was to be offered in many cases depending on the financial situation of the person making the offering. If you were well-off, you might offer a nicer animal. If you were not, you might offer something uh, less costly. That's a grace of God even in that mechanism. So, very important across the Old Testament. Listen to the way uh, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament describes this in chapter 9. says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, this is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their rituals and duties. But into the second, we talked about this week too, into the second room, only the high priest goes, and he only goes but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. So he's describing the interior of the tabernacle and later the temple and the way in which... Ministry would happen within that first room, but there was the curtain, the thick curtain, which kept that first room from the second room, the holy of holies, the most holy place where the presence of God was held, and the priest could only go in this one day of, of the year, the day of atonement, the high priest, with a blood offering. So all that to say, there, there's some context. Here's, here's the point. sacrifice. The sacrificial system was good. It served its purpose for providing a system by which people could express their trust in God and cleanse themselves. Um, trust in God, in fact, to cleanse and to forgive them. But, but what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that that system, as good as it was, as much of a function as it served, it could not deal with the deeper matters of the heart. It had to be repeated and ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. It was a perpetual thing. It could not deal with the deepest matters of the heart, and therefore it was provisional, temporary, repeated and repeated and repeated. And that was the, the way of things, and it was fine, until Jesus. Until Jesus. So listen to the next few verses in Hebrews 9. Picking up in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, even though the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all. Once to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Skipping ahead to verse 26, and then we'll be done here. For then, he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, At the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed once for man to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I know that's a lot. There's Bible words in there and heavy theology, but the point is... Temple system was good, repeated animal sacrifices and other sacrifices necessary for the cleansing and the atonement for sin, but all of it was ultimately ineffectual, waiting, just pointing forward to the day when there would be a once-for-all final sacrifice that would come through Jesus, the Son of God himself. In his great mercy, he said, no longer will you need to repeatedly offer sacrifices, but I the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, will be the sacrifice. So just pause there. Anytime you think about the grace of God, the mercy of God, this is the chief image of it. If sin alienates us from God and and, and blood has to be shed, how radical that the God of the universe says, you know what, I will take on human flesh. And I will not just demand people sacrifice each other or something, Cruel and disgusting like that. I won't even, you know, I'm not finally going to demand the sacrifice of animals. I will be the sacrifice that is necessary. What a gift. What a gift. It's almost incomprehensible what is on offer here. The mercy, this is the mercy of the gospel. Not that we suddenly became sinless or any less in need, but that he came and met every need through the giving of his own life. And we receive the benefits of that simply through faith or trust. Pick a, pick a word you prefer. Ephesians 5.2 says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The logic of all this is right there. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice, the saving sacrifice, who inspires our responsive sacrifice. So we find the meaning of what it means to offer our bodies as living sacrifices there. Christ is the once-for-all blood sacrifice, and that means we then sacrifice of an entirely different nature. I love the way This 19th century Scottish theologian, Thomas Erskine, once wrote, listen to this. In the New Testament, religion is grace, and ethics is gratitude. I'm going to write that down. If you write things down, you should write that down. In the New Testament, religion is grace. The whole religious operative principle at place is the grace of God towards undeserving sinner. And then our response... Our ethics, the key to our transformation, the key to a life well-lived, then, is gratitude. Not earning, not, God, I've got to do something for you to like me. He's already done it. We, in gratitude, respond the way he he desires. Note the language in Romans. We offer our bodies not as a dead sacrifice. It's not this cruel idea of us, like, throwing ourselves up on an altar and, you know, slitting our throats or something like that. It's a living sacrifice sacrifice. There's no more death here. Maybe a dying to yourself in the way that Jesus speaks of, but in the deepest sense, it's a life. A life well lived to the glory of God. A life full of His goodness, joy, and peace, beauty. So this becomes a sacrifice of life and love and obedience lived in conformity to His will rather than the world's, which is what verse 2 goes on to illustrate. So, our spirituality, your spirituality, your obedience, your ethics, your sacrifice is not payment. It's not, it's not a bill that's due. It's not performance, but it is gratitude for what Jesus has finished once and for all. So because of what Jesus has done, we give him back our whole selves, body, but also spirit as we've already talked about, our whole self given back to him, even when it's costly, even when it's costly, out of gratitude and joy. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Those are nice words or whatever. What does it look like? I want to look at three verses just in two passages very, very briefly to just give a little bit of track to run on, where sacrifice is mentioned as worship with a specific command. This won't be exhaustive. This will just be three examples but I think they, they start to paint a picture for us of what this could look like, so let's, let's jump in. First, a sacrifice of praise. From Hebrews 13, and then the next one will just be the very next verse, but verse 15, uh, the author of Hebrews says, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And when I, every time I've read this, I've been like, so what, am I, like, in what sense is this praise, declaring the, the goodness of God, what is, what is sacrificial about that? But I realize that anything we do has at least an opportunity cost, and I think that might be a key part of the idea here. To praise God with our words is to incur the opportunity cost of doing something else, the cost of not being able to do something else at that given moment. And I think some of us are paralyzed by opportunity cost. I know that for like my wife and I, we're, we're, uh, we fancy ourselves a little bit as foodies, and that's like what keeps us so, like despite the hard things about Portland, we will probably never leave Portland because the food is so good here, all right? It's just such a glorious place to try wonderful things. But the opportunity cost of any one meal can be paralyzing. Anybody experience that? Well, we could go here, but that means we wouldn't be going here. And if we go back to our favorite place, that might mean that we're not going to experience something new that we haven't thought of yet. And if we do this, oh, but that might be... And so you just get stuck two hours later, like, well, I guess we missed dinner. We should just go to bed. Like, we're just, just not going to happen. Or more seriously than that, opportunity cost is a classic fear behind why so many people who, who have some desire for a committed romantic relationship or marriage just can't give themselves over to it, Right? It's the idea that, like, who else is out there? Who else is out there? Sure, this person, you know, is okay, whatever, but maybe they're great, but maybe there is someone who I like even more. It's more beautiful, that, you know, is into, you know likes food as much as I. whatever it is. It's paralyzing. And that's all that's to say. Like, to say yes in Christian marriage to a spouse is to enter into an exclusive, lifelong covenant with them, which means simultaneously saying no to all other potential spouses, right? When you covenant yourself to this one person, the idea is that you are saying simultaneously no to everyone else. You know what that is? That's an opportunity cost. And that commitment I truly believe, produces the greatest depth, the greatest health, the greatest beauty in a relationship when two people have covenanted to one another and said, I will be there for you no matter what. There is no other relationship in which you can bear your whole self to that person because you know like they will be there. Even when they discover this thing about me, they will be there. That's the beauty of it. That's the logic of it. That's why God designed it to be such a way. It is the key to the most intimacy you could possibly have with another person. And yet, there is a cost there is a cost. You don't get anyone else. That is opportunity cost. And I think that is part of what it means to sacrifice through praise. To praise, and I think this idea of, of praise, it means, I mean, the most natural assumption is through singing, which we have talked about and we associate with, I think that's right, to praise God through song. Uh, but also to praise, he says just with the, the what's it say? Um, oh, it's on my previous page here want to get the quote wrong the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name so I think it's broader than just song it's also through just your prayers it's also through just declaring like like Luke let us we didn't even talk about this but like Luke led us into at the beginning of the service just a moment to declare without even the aid of music or whatever else the praises of God to praise God through song through prayer through witnessing even is to incur the opportunity cost of doing something else of letting our attention and affection turn elsewhere. When you make the decision to come to a Sunday church gathering like this, you are incurring an opportunity cost. You could be at brunch at a really good restaurant, and now the lines are going to be too long when you get out of here. I'm so sorry. (laughs) You've incurred a cost to make the decision to come here, and even on the micro level, when you make the decision to praise him, on your own time, in your own space, as you're going about your day, you you are taking the cost of something else that might consume your time. He says, make that sacrifice, make that sacrifice, that sacrifice of praise, whatever form it takes. Here's another one from the very next verse, verse 16. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Sacrifices pleasing to God. Again, this is worship language. This is is temple language. Now on this side of Jesus, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We could say this is a sacrifice of service. So good deeds or good works. And obviously by the second phrase, this is uh, obviously explicitly tied to, to generosity towards our brothers and sisters. I like the way Richard Foster put this. He says, more than any other single way, the grace of humility is worked into ourselves through the discipline of service. Humility, as we all know, is one of those virtues that is never gained by seeking it. The more we pursue it, the more distant it becomes. But if you want humility, if you want to be conformed to Christ in that way, don't think about humility and think, oh, how can I be a really humble person? Start serving. Start giving your time and your energy and your your desires to other people for their good and for their blessing, for their benefit, and it will be built into you. Donald Whitney, another great writer on the spiritual disciplines, writes, worship empowers serving, and serving expresses worship. So to be obedient to God... Especially in service and generosity towards our brothers and sisters, especially when it's costly, when you don't want to, when you have plans, when you have other ways you might like to spend your energy. That is, in fact, worship. It is, in fact, worship. It is a sacrifice pleasing to God. One more where these, where these words are found together is in Philippians 4. I'll read this 14 through 20 for you. So Paul's concluding the letter to the Philippians, the church in Philippi, and he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know yourselves that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received it from Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God the same language again and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ to our God and Father be glory forever and ever amen That's, that's the end so Paul explicitly names the Philippian church's financial generosity towards his gospel ministry as an act of sacrificial worship and this is maybe, maybe the one where we see the, the, the sacrificial element and the cost, most literally. To give your money to the Apostle Paul's gospel ministry is to incur a cost that that money is not going to go somewhere else. It's not going to go towards a car payment. It's not going to go towards a bigger house. It's not going to go towards more clothes. It's not going to go towards whatever your thing is. You are saying, I'm going, though I might have a desire for these other things, and there might not be anything wrong with a desire for these other things. I'm going to set those things down sacrificially offer this. The sacrifice of financial generosity. And this is just one piece. This is one piece. Um, Offering money towards gospel ministry is one piece of how the New Testament talks about our relationship to money, which we should view um, God as the owner of and us as the stewards of. It's how the scriptures conceptualize our relationship to money. He owns it all, and he entrusts us with portions of it to be faithful with, for his kingdom. So our use of his money is meant to reflect his values and priorities. Among which, we, we included this in our little uh, um, community commitments document. If you, you, this language might sound familiar to you. But if you want to see how the New Testament talks about us using our money, it says we need to have a commitment to care for our own families. We need to have a commitment to provide for the church itself and the mission of God worldwide talks about having provision for our brothers and sisters in the church. And it talks about having provision for the most vulnerable and needy. Those in greatest need. So a sacrifice of financial generosity in each of these ways is worship. Is worship. And I liked, I've been thumbing through um, John Mark Comer's new book, Prex in the Way. I like this quote on, on this discipline in particular says, this is one of the most joyful of the practices, speaking of generosity. says, at the heart of the Trinitarian community we call God is an outflow of generous, self-giving, forgiving love. In the gospel itself, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and the son in turn gave the spirit. When we give our money, our resources, our time, our love, we get to participate in that divine outflow of love. It truly is better to give and to receive. But sometimes it takes gritting our teeth and entering into that discipline before an appreciation for the beauty and the power of it becomes evident before we experience it. So this applies, financial generosity, it applies of course to our treasure but also to our time and talents, our whole selves. And I just realized this week that at least three of our kind of community commitments we've been calling our church into are explicitly tied into the, these three ideas that we've laid out here. We've talked about the gift of, or, or the, a, dis, a discipline of inviting, which is what? Lips that acknowledge his name and call people in. A discipline of serving. The kind of good works that the author of Hebrews spoke of towards our brothers and sisters. And the gift of giving, finding, or the discipline of Giving. A sacrifice of financial generosity to see God's mission advanced and his kingdom propagated and the poor and suffering among us cared for. Cool when it works out that way. So, I want to keep this brief to conclude. Jesus not only did this for us as a sacrifice, he not only was the final sacrifice. Um, like to, to, to answer the question of how will sin be dealt with? But he also did it as a relational model. And think of John 13, when he, after washing the disciples' feet in the upper room. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so, am I, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly. That means listen, listen. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You could summarize Jesus' ministry by saying, He came, and all of His ministry was encompass- encompassed this idea of Him as a sacrifice on our behalf. It applies to the cross, but it applies to every time he stopped what you know, the busy schedule that he had going to take the gospel out to listen to someone, to care for them, to heal them, to offer them the, just the right word that they needed from him, from God, to change the course of their lives, to open the eyes of the blind, to make the lame walk and the sick be healed and well. Every single time he offered this kind of humility, sacrifice, service, this offering. Even when he takes this moment, the night he was betrayed, to wash his disciples' feet, he's saying, this is a picture of what I have come to fundamentally do to wash you. In fact, Peter has this little thing, Lord, you can't wash my feet. He says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no place in my kingdom. Everyone must be washed by me. We, we see that he's, he's speaking about the cross and this bigger idea. So he, but then he goes on and says, look, just as I've done for you, you've got to do this for one another. You have to make this sacrifice for one another if you're going to be my disciples. You must look like me. In this regard, not that you die on the cross, but because of what i 'm doing on the cross, you will find a spiritual reservoir of power you did not think possible to pour yourself out for others as a living sacrifice living sacrifice so if we think about this whole series and uh, if you missed any of the teachings, i 'd encourage you to go back and listen online, but we 've considered that this Multifaceted picture of worship. We've seen that worship is fundamentally in response to our God. Worship doesn't make any sense unless we have a God who is worthy of our praise and worship, which I, I submit to you, oh my goodness, the biblical God is, almost incomprehensibly so. And with week two, we talked about worship is no longer confined to the temple in a particular place in Jerusalem through these particular rituals, but now, this side of the cross, this side of the sending of the Holy Spirit, worship is anywhere in spirit and in truth, with your whole self, including your spirit, dialed in, and lined up with the truth as God has revealed it, specifically, most powerfully, in the person of Jesus Christ. The third week, we talked about worship through through music, through singing, through, through praise, through song, which we talked about is the function of that is to be emotive. Emotions aren't bad. Tapping into your emotions, stirring them up for emotive exclamation of who God is, why he's worth praising. And out of that, we, we turn the next week to talk about the pattern in the Bible of joyful feasting. If it makes sense that we're supposed to get stirred up and worked up about declaring the praise of God, it makes sense then that like partying, <laughs> responsibly, but partying, feasting, in response to God, makes a whole lot of sense then on that schema. But just as you start to think like, oh man, okay, this is all about like emotion and you know all this kind of stuff, then we talked about the pattern in the Bible of routine liturgy. So there's a place too for just saying, I'm going to commit to doing habits, repeating things, things that sometimes I do not feel like. Joy is not overflowing in my heart, but I'm just going to show up out of obedience and do it. Because I think there's still some way for me to meet with him in that as well. And similarly today, ending on this idea of costly, obedient sacrifice, which almost always means when you don't want to on some level. You don't want to on some level. But you think the Lord is worth it. He he is the greater desire even over these other desires. It might be good things, might be good things, but you're willing to lay those down because he's even better and you want to offer these things to him. So may we be, Door of Hope, a people who takes every opportunity to worship. Flowing out of all this, May it be so when we feel it particularly passionately, which I hope you do some days, but also on days when we don't, which is going to be a lot of days, I assume, if you're anything like me. Days when you're just like, my heart is not in this, I'm distracted, I'm discouraged, I'm doubting. You can still come to him. He wants you to come to him. You can do it when it's planned and when it's Spontaneous. You can do it when it's routine and when it's in some brand new format. We can praise him when it feels like pure joy and when it feels like costly sacrifice. Both. And everything in between. Everything in between. That's what it means to offer a whole life as a living sacrifice to him. To worship him in spirit and in peace. And if we look back at Romans 12, 2, Paul seems to be saying that when we do offer our whole selves, body and all, as living sacrifices, we are both resisting being conformed to the habits of the world that are always working to shape you towards their desires. We're resisting that, and we are allowing God to transform our minds to be more like His. So let us be a worshiping people, door of hope. May we respond to Him with everything that He has owed, which is more than we can give, of course. But to the extent that we can, everything we have, which includes our whole lives being transformed more and more and more, day by day by day, choice by choice by choice into his image. Not because we think it will earn us a thing. Lord, here's my sacrifice that means you owe me. Here's my sacrifice that means you gotta give me the stuff that I want. No, not because it earns us a thing, but because he has freely already given us everything. And we long to joyfully express our gratitude more and more and more. Amen? Let's pray.